I always think of uh, usability, accessibility being a lot like security. You never try to build it in at the end because it's so much harder. You try to build it in as you go. Welcome to another DevCast. My name is Adam D'Angelo, and as always, I'm co-hosting with John Janik. John, how are you today? It's another summer day in paradise. So, John, I believe uh, you have an article you wanted to share with us today. All right. So this is uh, this is our new DevCast format, which is, you know, we've been talking about it and trying to make things a little more relevant and, and interesting for our audience and for the folks that we're connecting with. We found a really interesting article today that I thought was worth sh sharing and talking about. Actually, I guess it's a couple of days old now. And uh, it's it, the title of it's really intriguing, right? Many federal websites don't meet accessibility requirements. And this whole discussion is really interesting. So we thought we would bring Joyce Karshwa back and talk a little bit about accessibility. Joyce is a certified 508 tester for DHS. And really kind of just really quickly talk about what does it mean? And what and the thing that was really interesting, Adam, about this article is that they said out of uh, 72 kind of important domains, uh, most popular, right? 30% of the home pages for those domains didn't meet standards for accessibility, which meant that they're, they were not by definition fully inclusive of folks who are protected under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So I thought that was just fascinating. I thought it'd be a good way to open up the conversation this today. Yeah, so thanks for having me back. I agile myself and I, I don't just talk agile, I talk section 508. As you mentioned, the Americans with Disabilities Act doesn't just do things like make sure there's ramps and buildings and curb cuts and sidewalks, which are awesome even if you're not disabled, they let you say, take a stroller or a cart or get heavy things in and out of buildings. Um, but they also help folks who have some sort of federally protected disability. So when I was doing all the training, I remember being taught, you know, imagine if you had to use this website and you couldn't see, or you had to magnify your monitor so that you could see, say, a quarter of what the normal web page was. And imagine if you had to use it without a mouse, just a keyboard. And that is because some people who have either limited use of their hands or have lost fingers may not be able to operate a mouse properly. So they rely on keyboards because they can usually use the tab, the arrow, the space, the enter to do the same commands as you would with a mouse. And I know most of us have probably had the experience where someone designed a really stupid online PDF form that doesn't accept data properly or the tab order jumps all around and you can't figure out where things are. And, and we all know that frustration and it, it can be maddening. You're just trying to fill out a silly form for the vet or school or whatever. And it was designed by an idiot basically is what you end up feeling like. And unfortunately, what this article is definitely confirming is that the government is doing that to a lot of our population. I know that there was a massive lawsuit against IRS because I think it was a person who was blind sued and said he could not properly file taxes. And it was awarded in the, I, in large figures. I don't know if it was millions or billions, but it was a lot of money. And so the IRS definitely cleaned up their site 
and um, many public facing sites have been cleaned up, but it will it, it is going to be an impediment for moving a lot of government services online if this isn't fixed. So I think that's why it's it's not just a big deal for people who have disabilities, but it's a big deal for all of us who would prefer to do other things than sit in a lobby somewhere waiting to turn in forms that are hard copy. Yeah, and that's an interesting point, Joyce, because you know a lot of the work that I've supported um, our federal customers doing over the years is really digitizing some of their legacy paper processes, the way they collect, gather, and report on information. And much of that right, has been to take old paper forms, old manual processes, and turn them into you know, custom design systems. I know from the systems I worked on that 508 uh, web accessibility was part of the design and development effort. So let me ask you this. Why, why do you think that there are so many websites out there that are not meeting these web accessibility standards. Is it lack of knowledge, lack of uh, capable testers to ensure that they meet the standards, or or just somebody not caring to do it? Can I say D, all of the above, maybe? Um, it's a little bit hard to tell because I, I do think it, it matters. I know with the DHS Trusted Tester Program, and most of what GSA manages, which is general services, it, it, it's pretty much anything that is critical to the operation of the government should pass these standards. I think where you can run into problems is, well, are certain programs critical? Um, maybe a, a web page for the national parks, you know, is that critical? It's not maybe critical in the same way as being able to file taxes or get your social security benefits. But to me, somebody who is in a wheelchair or who can't use their hand or who is visually impaired shouldn't be robbed of the experience of learning about all of the wonderful resources we have in our national parks, because those, those folks visit the parks too. So to me, defining what's really important enough to be tested is really a slippery slope. And, and to me, if it's public and public facing, it, it probably should be accessible. Just like, for example, it's very difficult to get an exception on a building because this is the same law that covers buildings as covers websites. It's very difficult to get an exception on a building that, to make it not accessible. It has to have a lot of, like you have to basically prove that that building um, that is historically significant and doing the things required to make it accessible would ruin whatever makes it historically appropriate. So taking maybe Mount Vernon and adding a ramp to the front of it would ruin the, the architecture that George Washington had designed. So you might somehow find a different way to make it accessible. Or maybe it would get waived altogether. There are places that has happened where they waive it altogether. However, that's a process that usually has to be followed and granted. And the default setting is you should be able to find a way. Uh, but somehow, a lot of times, this doesn't happen with our websites. And, and I, I do remember, I think it was just last week, I was talking with one of our recently certified testers. And, and she was asking me if I thought something was, was truly an accessibility problem or just a usability problem, meaning it was maybe not the best design, but, but wasn't a, a 508 failure. And you know, we both came down on the side of, you know, it, it probably is a 508 failure and, and we should 
take it to the developer. And, and when she did, she told me this developer just disagreed and didn't like it, <laughs> which kind of um, made me chuckle on the one hand, but on the other hand, I'm like, well, then tell him to use the website blind, you know, close his eyes and figure out how to find that menu. And I was like, that's basically what you have to think about is what is life like for people who depend on screen readers or who navigate with keyboards? And if, if you're adding to the frustration of using your site, if you're a commercial site, they're going to abandon. You know, we've all heard that term, right? You know, like the people that get frustrated and they leave an empty shop, they leave their shopping cart because it's too hard to check out. Well, if you're working on a government form, you don't have a choice. You need that service. You can't just abandon. But boy, you're certainly going to chew somebody's ear off when you finally get access to a human and say how horrible the experience was. And, and that's certainly not what we owe, what the government owes to the population. You know, we're all paying taxes. We all want things to work for us. And this is part of making the services work for all of us. So I, I appreciate that message, Joyce. I think it's really important to remember that as, as we go through it. And I want to kind of bring it back to the fact that this article highlights a problem that, that they discovered. One of the things that I think is really interesting is that there's an answer out there, right? The, the U.S. web design system that GSA put out, a little controversial, but one of the things it does do very well is describe exactly what the accessibility tenants and structures for their design system are, right? And I think that's one of the things that, to your point, right, we don't spend enough time talking about what digital accessibility means and how we're going to focus on it. And that those things should be done right up front. They should be guiding values, values and principles for how the development is done. Because if, it, if it's taken from that approach, then it's much easier to make sure that we're implementing the right things at the right time, right? Exactly. Um, it's, I always think of uh, usability, accessibility being a lot like security. You never try to build it in at the end because it's so much harder. You try to build it in as you go and you try to plan for it. So when you do your wireframes, when you do your user stories, and when you plan your design, think about it up front. There's nothing worse than getting to your Section 508 tester, letting them do your site and having them come back and go, oh, by the way, your color scheme for the entire branding you've picked doesn't have enough color contrast and, and you got to fix it. That I mean, granted, it's CSS. It, it may not be too big of a deal, but that's global. Think about that on the front end and you'll save yourself a lot of headaches. There are tools, plugins that you can download the main one they use right now is called Andy, A-N-D-I. You can get it from, I believe it's the uh, GSA website or the DHS website, the public facing, and download it. it. It just sits on your toolbar of any browser. When you're working, you can actually test your code and it will, it will flag warnings for you. And as a developer, you may not be able to interpret exactly what it's telling you or why it's throwing the error, you know, it'll, it'll be pretty clear English what it thinks the problem is, but you may not as a developer really understand why it's a violation or how to fix it uh, without consulting with a trusted tester or a certified tester. But at least it will tell you obvious stuff up front, like, hey, you don't have enough color contrast, or you've got something here that doesn't have an accessible name. You know, you have a field and it doesn't have an accessible name label, things like that that are pretty minor. 
but if you can catch them up front and, and code as you go, you can take care of them. I mean, I've seen it happen before where somebody gets, say, a button formatted the way that it's supposed to be, and they cut and paste it and use it everywhere, but they forget to change that accessible label. And so suddenly every label has print as the accessible label, but that same button is used for you know 12 different things. It was just quick coding or quick design, but they didn't go back and, and fix it on the back end, you know, that kind of thing. So the Andy tool can be really helpful for things like that. The other one is called the color contrast analyzer, and that one is an actual install, not just a browser plugin. And that one you can use to test colors and make sure there's enough contrast between text and the background to make to make sure that it would pass. And it will check, you know, for font size, there's different standards, whether it's large, considered quote unquote large font versus standard, um, whether it would pass or not. And I think it will even test for the 2.0 versus 2.1, if I recall. There's two different standards it tests for. So that can be super helpful if you're doing branding. And you can do a lot of browsing on the web for you know, recommendations for Section 508 uh, compliant color combinations. Um, one of the things I learned in my training that was a news to me, I was aware of colorblindness as an issue. And usually red-green is the most common, which we all do stoplight charts, right? So the quick fix for that is don't just do a circle with color, you know, make it a shape also so people can tell the difference. But I didn't realize there's there's several different types of colorblindness that can affect people. And there are browser plugins that will show you, okay, what does this color scheme look like if you have each of the different types of colorblindness? So you can tell for sure if there's enough contrast between your colors so that the things stand out that you want to stand out. And um, that can be very helpful. So, you know, there's, there's a, lot of, um, a lot of things you can learn, even if you don't become fully certified, just by using some of these plugins and tools. That's great, Joyce. I, I think the message for our, uh, both our federal listeners and others is that there's plenty of resources available. And it's really interesting if you're if you're managing one of those sites, you know there are places to go to, including Joyce, and come talk with Joyce and get some insights on on how to fix that thirty percent. So great stuff! Thanks, thanks, Joyce. Oh, happy um, to happy to share. Thank you. So Adam, um, so in addition to our thirty percent discussion, uh, you, you had an interesting article you had stumbled across too, right? Right. Yeah. So uh, the William and Flora, Flora Hewlett Foundation uh, published an article in Futurity titled, uh, Researchers Say Students Need to Be Prepared for a World Filled with a Continual Flow of Misleading Information. Uh, now, I, I'm sure this doesn't really shock anyone listening to this. I think misinformation has really been at the forefront of kind of all of our information related discussions over the last year or or more at this point. So yeah, I, I think, you know, hearing that it is something that is impacting our students and, you know, the youth in our country is, is something that's troubling. Knowing that individuals, high school students who might be trying to craft a, a, a research paper or understand the, the meaning behind something that was taught in school um, is unable to necessarily find and differentiate factual information from false information on the internet. Uh, so 
you know, I, I think that's definitely a bit troubling. And, and John, you, you have you have some kids who are of uh, middle school and high school age. You know, what, what are your thoughts on this? You know, Adam, I think we live in a time where there are some different perspectives on what it meant or what it means to see something put out in the public. I think when you look to our parents, there was an expectation that if the media is talking, it's obviously true. And that's just simply not the case anymore because anyone can be a media presence, right? So the diversification of that power, right? The, the push and dissemination has really created uh, a lot of interesting dynamics within the constructs, the social constructs that exist. And this has all been studied and well-documented that the echo chambers that exist, you know, you've got a lot of folks like on the Facebook conversation. I, you know, I don't think I need to get into that. W what I do think is interesting from my perspective is that, and this always gives me a, a sense of, of satisfaction, you know, we run the internal tech all calls and we continually bring in people from the outside for these all calls who are talking about these issues before they really become uh, pointed and, and mainstream in our conversations, right? So we had, uh, we had John Scott over at Ion Channel talking about software supply chain and the importance of that before, before the SolarWinds hack, right? We, we had Lisa Kaplan come in and talk with us about disinformation and the impact that has on how we perceive and how we interact with, with the reality around us. And that is predating a lot of the work that we've seen come out, coming out the last couple of months. What's really interesting to me is that we're entering into a phase now where it's not just, you know, everybody was, was used to nonsense being spewed on, on Twitter. We're entering into a phase now where with AI and advanced computation, you're not going to be able to discern reality from stuff that's completely made up, right? We're already seeing videos that are completely 100% fake, artificially created from start to finish. Uh, we're seeing, you know, all kinds of crazy things happening where there is just phenomenal possibility for damage. And what we're not doing, and I think we've talked about this a little bit, is really focusing on the importance of critical thinking skills and measured response, a little bit of stoicism, right? Maybe you don't react to everything you see or hear or read. Maybe you just let it go and think about it and come back to it later. You know what I mean? Yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah, so uh, let me. I'm going to read from the article a little bit here because I, I think it's a little bit more fascinating than just oh, I'm being presented information that's not truthful. Um, what what the this research tried to show was that students are unable to even to you know figure out if it's truthful or or false information. So uh, let's see. So oh, one sure. of the what, the what the, the presentation's exactly the same, right? Yeah, if yeah. You, the, tr the, the difference between a truth and a lie is indiscernible, right? Well, no, so it's about going deeper than that, right? So in one of the study's tasks, the researchers showed students an anonymously produced video that circulated on Facebook in 2016 showing ballot stuffing during the Democratic primary elections, right? And then they asked these, you know, the thousands of students participating in this study to use an internet-enabled computer to determine whether there was strong evidence of, vo of voter fraud. 
And what they wound up finding out was that less than one-tenth of one percent of the folks involved in this study were able to divine the actual source of truth for this video, right? Which, which happened to be uh, footage from uh, voter fraud uh, in Russia. It had nothing to do with, you know, the democratic primary elections, but, but the students were unable to unearth the truth. In another task, they were asked to vet a website proclaiming to disseminate factual reports about climate change, right? But over 96% of the students failed to discover that the publisher had ties to the fossil fuel industry. So I think what what the researchers were starting to conclude is that students are were too easily swayed by relatively weak indicators of credibility, right? Whether that's a website's appearance, uh, the characteristics of a domain name, a site's about page, um, or the sheer quantity of information available on that website. So, you know, I, I think it's definitely pretty scary to to realize that our students, right, the, the, the youth of this country who we always assume are going to be probably the most technologically capable you know, generation ever, they're, they're clearly not well equipped to discern fact from fiction in the online world. So, yes, let me let me caveat that discerning truth and source of truth has always been a challenge, always, right? And I think what's really interesting, so let me let me put a slightly different spin on it. 40, 50, 60 years ago, so let's look at like the, the, My, Lai, the My Lai massacre, right, in Vietnam. That was one journalist who kept finding the next lead, kept digging for the truth until he found it, until he figured it out, right? We depend on a group of people in our society who are truth seekers and a have skills, talent and proclivity to that activity, except for the fact that as a discipline and as a, as a job, it's a fraction of what it used to be in the past. Right. And so, and so I would say, to, I would say that, yes, I'm not surprised by what you're telling me that people struggle to figure out whether or not something is, is true and can discern the source of truth for the artificial or, or natural constructs, right? Whichever they are. What I see is that the people that we used to have in society who made that their calling because they were good at it, because they were trained for it, because they had a job to support it, they don't exist anymore. Does that make sense? Not in the same way they used to. Yeah. That makes great sense, John. And I think one of the things, you know, that is important is, is what's happened to journalism. Cause everybody, you know, what's the old adage? Journalism is the rough draft of history. Right. And this this article in some ways cuts both ways because it does also highlight the fact that there are more people than ever that get a chance to have a say in that rough draft because it's not controlled by quote unquote big media outlets anymore you know it used to be that you couldn't get something published in the newspaper unless you could get it through your editor and so there were gates 
to make sure that she didn't publish something that would get the newspaper sued and that was totally crazy and off the wall. Uh, that's why, you know, for example, when they built the case for Deep Throat against Nixon, you know, all of that whole intrigue that went on uh, before Watergate broke, you know, there, the, the newspaper had to make sure everything was airtight. And like you said, there were there's ethics about that profession that um, were very strong. And, and anybody who was taught journalism, that was a big, huge part of it was your ethics. I think, though, now with social media, anybody can have both a pulpit or a bully pulpit. And it's very hard to discern the difference. And, and that's put not just our youth, but all of us in a very uh, difficult position of discerning not just where is the information coming from, but what are the motivations of the people putting it out? And what are they trying? Why is this person motivated to put it out? Is there some reason that they're conveying a message other than to share it with me? Um, you know, like Adam pointed out, the, the the website that ended up being backed by uh, a, a fossil fuel industry uh, that was on climate change statistics, you know, that would make me question the veracity of that information, perhaps. But it, it is true that it's terribly difficult to figure these things out with the way that it's easy to hide connections these days, too. You know, because like usually, I mean, let's think. I don't know if you guys are old enough to have remembered, but when I was younger, you you checked newspapers, you used, oh my God, microfiche, Encyclopedia Britannica back when it was actually books, right? And if if there was a connection or conflict of interest, most of the time those publications would indicate it. They would say something like, you know, this magazine, this newspaper is part owned by or has or is a subsidiary of, you know, when they published something. So you could you could have some sort of indication that there might be an ethical concern, but you know it's not necessarily true that that's happening on the web anymore. And, and that I think is where that critical thinking and the ability to follow chains of information is really more on the individual than it ever has been in the past. And I don't know that our children are learning this in high school. Maybe those that go to college learn it, some of them. But in high school, I don't think they're being taught anything about how to do this, except maybe don't use Wikipedia as your primary source. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Joyce. And, and it's actually what one of the researchers wound up suggesting as a potential remedy, right? Um, basically teaching students strategies that are based on what professional fact checkers might do, right? You brought up, you know, uh, and, and, you know, your, your editor um, at a, a old print paper, right? What are their strategies for, for checking, you know, the, the validity of facts to ensure that a story is accurate, right? Um, so that that's what one of the researchers suggested needs to be taught to students, or you know, frankly, anyone using the internet these days, right? Um, we we're not actually teaching people fundamentals of how to look at the things that they're exploring on the internet, and I I, I think that's 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 going to be a big risk for us as as we move forward. And and you're one hundred percent right. Schools absolutely need to integrate uh, digital literacy into the core curriculum. It, it's too important um, due to the fact that this is how people get information and share ideas these days. And if you are unable to or unaware of ways to use your computer to, to fact check or generally determine 
how valid a source might be, we are all in trouble. Not to be a not to be a downer. No, well, I so i i do want to I do want to point out that the question around authenticity of information, whether it's fabrication or not, whether it's uh, whether it's sensationalization, right? These these are things. You know, a lot of a lot of what Joyce and I alluded to in, in the in the journalism industry are relatively modern concepts, right? There was a whole period in the in the country's history where there was this thing called the yellow press that just made stuff up. And it was out of that experience that a number of, of constructs and norms were created that allowed us to go through that era of that golden journalism era where you know, Cronkite's word meant something and the New York Times was this stalwart of the truth kind of thing, right? And that's not to say that these these organizations haven't had a position. Anybody that truly says that the news is unbiased is, is just, there's always going to be a bias where people, people have biases. But I do think that you're right, Adam, what we're, what we're missing in this conversation is teaching our kids the importance of the critical thinking skills they need to have so that when they are approached with something that challenges their mental model of the world, they understand how to evaluate it, how to source it, how to determine whether or not there's truthfulness to it, you know, and, and build from that. I do want to kind of make one little connection, Joyce, you mentioned not sourcing Wikipedia. There was an article that came out fairly recently that actually cited that Wikipedia on average was more truthful than just about any other source on the internet because of the fact that it was a consensus-based system that a lot of people had input into. It wasn't just one, it just, it wasn't just one voice shouting into the wind, right? Right. And that is an excellent point. The crowdsourcing element is a lot of you know, self-correction, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And I think even when you look at how newsrooms used to operate, you, you talked about the editors and stuff like that. All those things kind of came together. You know, Adam, I think this is just a fantastic subject. I wish we could spend a long time talking about it, but I think we've, we've pretty much discussed this one to death. Where can folks, like if they want to, where was this article that you found? Where did it pop up? Uh, so for me, this popped up on uh, in my news feed from NextGov. Um, I, I shared the, the link with our editor here, who hopefully will be able to post that alongside um, the, the publication of this podcast. So um, for r- listeners who are interested, uh, they should be able to, to check it out themselves. Fantastic. What a, so we had two great discussions today. Uh, give us your feedback on... Do you like it? Would you would you want more of this? Right, Adam, we're always looking for feedback on what what do people connect with, what makes sense. Uh, you know, the only thing we're not going to do is Adam and I aren't going to stand outside and throw water balloons at each other. But uh, but we might be convinced to do that at some point. Yeah, I mean, if if we start a YouTube channel, perhaps. <laughs> we are coming to Twitch. We are yeah. coming to Twitch. It's That's right. Awesome. All right. Well. Uh, Thanks, John. Thanks, Joyce, for joining us again. And uh, we will catch all of our listeners next time. Thanks, everyone.